0: today, a conversation with one of the great stars of the Bronze Age, who still draws amazing work today, artist-writer Mike Grell. Grell's work goes back to the 1970s on titles like The Legion of Superheroes and Batman, but you have to include his own creations, like The Warlord and his revamp of Green Arrow, which began with the Longbow Hunters in 1986. Grell went on to Pacific Comics and later First Comics, creating works like Starslayer and John Sable. We talk about all of those projects, including a new story in the works with Mark Ryan called The Pilgrim. We'll discuss is embracing the digital comics world and some other new and past projects that may figure into Mike's future. Right now, the conversation begins with a look at what Mike's been doing at ComicMix.com. Well, What is coming up in the immediate future for you? The
1: immediate future. I'm working on a project uh, called The Pilgrim with my old pal Mark Ryan, who uh, everybody knows these days as the voice of Bumblebee in Transformers. But Mark has a a long history with comics uh, dating back to uh, Green Arrow Annual uh, that uh, he wrote years ago. Um, Mark is uh, a well-known British actor. He's been on stage on London's West End. He was in the original cast of Evita. He uh, uh, was nominated for the Olivier Award for his role in Elmer Gantry. Um, He starred in Robin of Sherwood. Played the uh, uh, Arabian character Nazir. Okay. Um, actually created that role out of whole cloth, and uh, it's interesting because nowadays, every time you see one of the Robin Hood uh, legends being portrayed, they always include an Arabic character. And Mark created that character. Wow. <coughs> he's uh, he's also an amazing writer. He's uh, just a very talented guy, and uh, he. He told me the story of the Pilgrim years and years ago, and I've been after him ever since to write it, and he finally did, and then I uh, put in my two cents worth and insisted that I had to be the one to draw it.
0: And what is the premise behind the Pilgrim?
1: It's, uh, it's an occult, supernatural uh, thriller, uh, I would say, sort of a supernatural techno-thriller, um, based in part on on factual uh, accounts that uh, took place during World War II, the uh, uh, the story is set contemporary, okay, so modern times. But it's based on uh, uh, the experiments that the British were actually conducting uh, back in, during World War II, as you know. Hitler and his cronies were keenly interested in the, the occult, the supernatural, mm-hmm. and um, at one stage of the game, uh, it's, it's widely known and accepted that Winston Churchill himself took place in druidic ceremonies during the war. Uh, now, whether or not that means that, Hitler, uh, that, that uh, Churchill believed in the occult it's enough that your enemy does. And (laughs) since Hitler did, it would certainly be uh, wise for um, the Brits to take advantage of that uh, either uh, weakness in the guy's character or to play his own weapons against him. There was a a colonel in the British Army uh, by the name of Kim Seymour who was uh, deeply involved in this. And uh, a lot of this, this same stuff Uh, has carried on into modern times as well the US government for instance had a program called Operation Stargate not the same as Stargate the television series Uh, but it involved uh, uh, using psychics and telepaths to actually conduct spying operations Um, the the concept being that if you sat in a room with a person Uh, who was, say, a courier, and he's got a briefcase with a special combination that you might possibly be able to uh, divine the combination of the case, or you might possibly be able to influence that person's actions in some fashion. Now, things go a lot stranger than that, Um, and I don't want to give away too much of this story, but uh, suffice it to say that some of the reactions and the responses that uh, the Brits got during World War II uh, were pretty darn dramatic. Um, It's one thing if uh, um, someone says, you know, if you lick your finger and stick it in a light socket, uh, something is going to happen and it's another thing if you actually experience it yourself it's <laughs> something you're not soon to forget and um, essentially that's what happened um, there were uh, uh, people who uh, opened doors and uh, what came through that door was pretty surprising and mark crafted this story that Gives me the willies. It, it's really, really intense and uh, very well thought out, very exciting story.
0: That sounds great. Now, um, how close are we to seeing that in print? Uh, very close. Oh, that's uh, great. print, um, uh,
1: actually, you'll see, a little, see it on ComicMix.com.
0: Okay, okay. Um, okay, and is that the, that's the plan then, to release it first online and then... Uh Absolutely. Okay. Yep.
1: Similar to be Musibel. Okay. It'll be released first online, and then when the story is complete, uh, it'll be printed uh, into book form, and uh, you can buy it in the local bookstores. But you get to read it for free first. Wow.
0: Well, how is it going to be broken up then? Uh, sequentially. I mean, is it going to be uh, a page a-, a page a day, a page a week? Um-
1: Uh, The way it operates on Comic Mix is they post uh, a segment a week. It generally uh, runs between five and as many as eight pages, depending on the beats of the story. Wow. Um, I suppose you could could, uh, think of it as, uh, um, call it six-page chapters. Okay. And um, it's a little like reading a comic strip.
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, you
1: know, bit by bit, except you don't have to read one page one day and then come back the next day for that next page. Um, and you don't have to worry about uh, if you miss a day or two either because you can go back and uh, read everything from the very beginning. All the pages that are posted in the story remain online and available and accessible anytime you want to go there and read it. Okay. Okay. So and like I said, it costs the reader nothing.
0: Wow. So is that going to start in March or in, uh, this month, or when will it be uh, Mark and I are beginning our work together
1: on it. Actually, Mark has been working on the, on the story uh, for several months already. Um, I expect to begin work on it uh, in March, and you should see it online fairly shortly after that. Uh, we're, we're working fairly close to the wire, in terms of uh, turnaround, so it could be April or May before it comes up, but it'll it'll be definitely a shorter wait rather than a longer wait.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Now, so um, will it be colored? Will it or will it be your blue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or? Okay, that's interesting. And uh, you're doing the coloring, I'm assuming, or uh,
1: no, I'm not. Oh, okay, no, I'm not. Uh, right at the moment, uh, we're looking at uh, Glenn Holman, uh, who's doing the coloring on Sable.
0: This is great. Uh, I know that uh, Mike Gold is uh, part of the team over at Comic Mix, and uh, that uh, I think it's interesting that you're approaching publishing this way—to to offer the story for free, and then when it's when it's done, then to offer, I guess, a trade paperback. Am I assuming? Is that correct? Or correct. What are the issues? Correct.
1: It'll be Mike clear. and I had this conversation. Oh Lord, I would say right about the time uh, they invented the internet. Really? Uh, At at that moment, of course, uh, everything ran very slowly. You know, the fastest connection anybody had was uh, uh, dial-up. 56K, I suppose, was (laughs) pretty darn speedy back then. Yep. And uh, there was a a huge question about um, how it could possibly work, how long it would take to download a single page. You know, we're looking at uh, back then perhaps an hour, hour and a half. To download a single page um, file compression security was a big problem mm-hmm. they hadn't gotten any of the bugs worked out it was just an idea but it was an idea that looked like it was where the future was going uh, a lot of people have asked well if the stuff is there online why would anybody bother going out and spending 20 bucks for a graphic novel uh, compilation uh, when they could just print it out at home sure. well yes you can certainly you can um, my printer uh, using good quality paper and to get the good quality prints uh, for a 20 page comic book would probably use about 40 bucks worth of ink. <laughs> So that just doesn't make sense. Uh, by the by, the time I'm done here, uh, Sable, for instance, is running uh, uh, right now. If that story runs 132 pages. It would cost an enormous amount just in just in ink um, with a with a laser printer. You know, huge, huge cost. When you can you can just wait a little while and buy the finished product for a fraction of that.
0: What do you think in terms of? I, I, I am I correct to assume? Do you think eventually everything is going to go electronic? And you know, are you are you fearful, or does it concern? Doesn't it concern you that maybe uh, paper is going to go away pretty soon? Maybe, or I, I don't know what your thoughts are on. on.
1: I, I don't think paper is going to go away. Um, I think we we may see uh, more of the electronic, and uh, perhaps a small decline in the number of. Um, I suppose the, the term is pamphlet-type comic books. Okay, okay. You know, fewer of, the, of the, the monthly stuff, but I think a lot of the, the smaller publishers are going to be looking at this as a viable way of uh, getting their material out there and getting it published.
0: Have you seen the Kindle, the Amazon reader, that they've released for electronic books? I've seen it. Uh, it, it certainly got my interest up. okay. And, yeah, I'm curious, too, and and wondering how illustration is going to show up from a digital resolution standpoint on, on, on a portable reader versus, I mean, I think it'll look fine on the screen. I'm not worried about that on a regular computer screen.
1: Yeah, it looks great on a regular computer screen. The the Kindle is a lot larger than, for instance, uh, uh, the iPhone. Mm -hmm. Um, There was uh, uh, folks who were uh, um, attempting to put comics on an iPhone, and uh, uh, aside from the obvious uh, expense, I don't know about you, but... At my age, I can't read anything that small. Uh, I I suppose I could carry a a magnifying lens around about the size of a standard computer screen and, and possibly be able to read it that way, but only at the risk of igniting the forest around me. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the uh the kindle though is a, a larger size and i think it's it's a perfectly viable way of doing this but you also have to think about the difference between um data transmission and the the number of uh, kilobytes involved in a page of text versus a page of colored artwork absolutely you know you're, you're talking about Uh, Being able to deliver an entire novel in a matter of a couple of minutes, that's great. Um, Or or at least get you started to where you could begin reading it in the first couple of minutes, where uh, uh, downloading a comic uh, could take a while longer. But I do think that that's a very viable and important uh, avenue that everybody ought to be
0: looking at. Are you still working in pen and ink, or um, have you tried anything on a stylus uh, and a tablet? try digital uh, illustration
1: I you know I've uh, I've checked out the Cintiq and uh, an old pal of mine has been using one for years and years I I wrote to him raving about this thing that I had discovered and he he wrote back on yeah I've been using one of those things you know since the last century (laughs) which is not quite as far back as it used to be but um, the the, the concept of it is intriguing, but um, it doesn't mean that I would ever give up my pencil. I still work um, in, uh, in pen and ink a bit. Uh, most of what I'm doing right now, I'm, I'm actually drawing it out, rendering it out in pencil. Then I use the computer to uh, uh, digitize it and make adjustments from there um getting some interesting effects i can virtually duplicate pen and ink with a pencil um uh, which is is great for me because i I love the pencil it's my favorite medium if i had to give everything away and just keep one thing to draw with it would be a pencil um but the one thing that you can't do with pen and ink is you can't imitate a pencil. Um, <laughs> but the computer can. You know, it, it can do all that stuff. But um, I started years and years ago uh, back with uh, Sable issue number 19 um, working in pencil on mylar film. Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, uh, you know, On frosted mylar. And uh, it took a long time to uh, develop that and get it to where it was working for me, it um, involved drawing on mylar and then using a photocopier to translate the line into black and white and then touching it up with ink from there and, and it worked great. It was, it was terrific. Um, cut out one step in the process as far as I was concerned. Uh, working in pencil is faster than working in ink for me. Okay. Uh, I find possibly because uh, I have a much shorter hand because I'm not worried about making mistakes. If you make a mistake with a, a pen and ink, uh, you get out the electric eraser and you grind and you grind and you grind, and then you hope that uh, you've gotten uh, down to the surface with that you can ink back over again and it won't show up too badly when you go for the, the final print on the thing. With a pencil, you just a few swipes with an eraser and it's gone, and uh, that, that helps a lot. Well, I've, uh, but then, but then, of course, you, you, I, I still try to get it looking as black as possible. But I do like that that uh, textured quality that you can get with a pencil that you can't get any other way.
0: Well, and I've seen, uh, and I've, I've purchased a few sketches from you at conventions in the last couple of years, and I've seen what you can do with a pencil. And it's interesting how you and I think Gene Colon as well have found these amazing ways to use a pencil that. You know, poor probably always there, but it's it's nice to see being used in comics, and that your work can immediately translate to the printed page without the need of an anchor, and, and it's it's great. I'm I'm glad to see that you you've gone to that, and I, I had forgotten that you've uh, talked about this as well in your in convention panels, and I find it interesting that you've made this choice and that the technology is there with uh, photocopying that it can capture that look and and you know keep it true to your original idea
1: yeah it works like a champ um with uh, with a good scanner uh you can you can get it into the computer and make your modifications there uh if you don't have a scanner if you actually send the pages in you know which i did for years and years uh then it's it's best to go ahead and and go to that uh photocopier and uh make your own copies that way you have uh, complete control over what the final black and white person looks like. You know, from there on, it's all mumbo jumbo. You know, it's into the hands of the red gods, and what comes out at the end is no longer within your control. But uh, um, as much as I can, I like to be pretty much hands on with the stuff.
0: Well, it's—I think uh, the new style shows on uh, your last IDW uh, New Sable series that you had. I mean, that's that's a good example of. Uh... I think what you've been doing now with your with your style and when you work with a colorist directly as opposed to having an anchor in there. Um, I'm also curious because now you mentioned the Pilgrim. Pilgrim sounds like it touches on a lot of your interests in terms of uh, intrigue and also uh, the supernatural. And it's it's kind of fun that you're going to be able to kind of throw together things, you know, different elements of maybe, say, like your shaman tales and, and sable and are able to uh, translate it through this, uh, this new way.
1: I don't now this one is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, challenging certainly Uh, it has a a pretty large cast of characters Uh, the story is very devious and twisted Um, I think Mark is doing this on purpose Uh, not to annoy me but uh, to challenge the readers as much as possible and I can promise you uh, when you start out in this thing uh, you only have a faint idea of where it's going to wind up. Um, it's a roller coaster ride and it's really exciting.
0: Very cool. Now has the Sable story started on Comic Uh Mix, the new Sable story? Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> better than halfway through. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, well, yep. well, can you tell us about the story there? It, it picks up pretty much
1: where the the last I D. W story blood trail leaves off, but with a difference um we had to structure it in order to uh, take into account the fact that only a relatively small portion of the available audience saw those books Okay. Uh, that were published by IDW. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get on the Internet, anything is possible. It, it doesn't take very long for things to spread. One person tells another person. Uh, it makes the rounds of a few email, uh, um You know, if you've got... <laughs> Friends who send off spam, uh, pretty soon everybody knows about it. And because the material stays up, it stays out there forever, eventually a lot of people are going to see Sable that have never seen it before. Uh, I'm hoping that people who listen to your podcast will uh, go to comicmix.com and start reading the story right from the beginning and get hooked. Um, So from that standpoint, I'm also using it to, in effect, uh, introduce the character to a brand new audience. Um Sable uh at the end of the previous story was in Africa and it begins in Africa with um the discovery of a huge rough diamond and um the uh the diamond consortium that uh, owns the the company. Um, wants to have it brought to New York City for uh, a big ex- exhibition that's taking place uh, right around Christmas time. And uh, Sable is hired as a courier. In the process, uh, he's more than just a courier. He also finds himself saddled as a babysitter with a spoiled rat model who is the company uh, icon, the... Uh, the the front man, or the not exactly the spokesperson, but she's the she's the show dog. She's the one who gets to wear the diamonds at the shows. But she's also very much a problem child, uh, spoiled rotten, uh, problems with uh, alcohol and drugs and men and everything that uh, a lot of our uh, famous young ladies seem to have to deal with these days. Um, so Sable has to contend with all of that meanwhile dealing with uh, an expanding cast of uh, villainous characters who are dead set on getting his shipment away from him. Um, He's got to transport the diamond, he's got to keep the girl out of trouble, and and he's somehow got to uh, avoid getting himself killed in the process. And that's only the beginning. (laughs) <laughs> um, there's a, a a lot of skull duggery, and uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm bringing back since it's got diamonds in it. I'm bringing back Maggie the Cat.
0: Excellent! What a Sable's great, uh, kind of a cat woman, an electric, you know, thing. And I, and I don't mean to slight you, Mike, because I've always loved Maggie the Cat, and I loved the first comics, even the miniseries that she had. And, it's a great character, and it's uh, Sable's just a great world. And, I, and I've always enjoyed how relevant the character was to his times, both in the 80s and since you've brought him back. And I'm curious, with the changes that we have seen, and maybe it's all cosmetic, but you go from Soldier of Fortune to Mercenary to now, uh, with the conflicts that we have overseas, a contractor for the kind of work that, that Sable does. I mean, are we going to see him kind of uh, dealing with the way that that you know mercenaries are used these days, and, and are we going to see maybe some you know some involvement in terms of that, as opposed to the usual uh, foreign intrigue that you know you've always had with Sable?
1: Absolutely, that's always been part and parcel of the the character anyway. Um, Sable lives in the real world, mm-hmm. and the real world changes uh, more rapidly these days than it ever did before uh but uh in order to be a, a viable character uh i feel that you have to keep him living in the present um uh, you know despite the fact that his his big uh, psychological problem is he's always dwelling on the past right uh but but in order to keep the the current character uh, viable for a modern audience you have to keep him up to date and um since i have been uh very staunchly um, adamant about keeping him uh, functioning in this world as opposed to some fantasy made up place. When the world changes Sable has to adapt uh, and that's part of the whole survival uh, theme in the, in the character himself. Um, he's he's learned first to adapt to uh, life in the wild in Africa adapt to the changes in his own life and then he gets shipped back to the United States where he has to somehow struggle with uh, all the changes that have gone on around him um, these days of course you can't have uh uh skullduggery going on in the streets uh, of New York without um, a certain amount of interest from homeland security and everybody else
0: you
1: bet. so uh, you know there, there's always going to be elements of that and um, from a from the standpoint of a writer the world we live in is great because there's no shortage of material to draw on <laughs>
0: We live in interesting times.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say that. Exactly right. Uh, I May mean, you live in interesting times. Uh, these days is a bit more interesting than anyone anticipated,
0: but uh, uh, it, it's not boring. Are you? Do you have? And I'm not asking you to spill any uh, information or anything. But um, you you were part of. Um, and and, and for, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you work in military intelligence? At, at, yes, at, I did. Okay, there we go. And so. Yeah, so you, I'm assuming that you've you got your finger on the pulse of this world, and and can certainly have go to uh, sources to you know beyond beyond the newspaper in terms of you know keeping things relevant. I think that's that's outstanding. I mean, and again, it was something that was always great to see in the craziness of the '80s when you were originally writing uh, the first series of Sable through every incarnation. I mean, it's uh, as we say, I guess we've always had interesting times, and you have found a way of of making Sable a part of them. It got, it got really funny when Longbow um, Hunters came out. I got
1: a phone call from a uh, New York radio station asked me if I would be willing to go on the air and talk about the plot line. And uh, I thought that was great. It was- terrific to have that kind of interest, but really what they were interested in was how I managed to beat the Iran-Contra drugs for guns scheme into print by six months. And, and they asked me then if I had any, any special contacts or any particular inside information. And I had, I had spoken and written before that uh, when I was in the Air Force a million years ago, I was with a combined intelligence and combat operations outfit, and uh, you know, uh, back then I had a a, a very high clearance. So I understood the machinations of the intelligence community, and I I get how this works. Uh, But I explained to them that all I had done was I took the various players and uh, plugged them into my plot situation and said, Now, if I were the CIA, what would be the stupidest, most ridiculous thing I could do if I thought I could get away with it? And that's what I wrote.
0: (laughs) Well, I notice we're up to week 15 now on Ashes of Eden. So uh, that's great. I'm going to have to, and forgive me, I'm going to have to catch up because I didn't realize it had begun, and shame on me because I really have. I've... I, I, that's
1: okay there's going to be a quiz later on but <laughs> you got time to study
0: <laughs> well this is great and now the listeners will be able to catch up as well because uh, you know uh, again I, I, Sable was always truly my favorite first uh, comic it really was I, uh, I, I loved what you did on the character and then uh, I also enjoyed what you did with Green Arrow because uh, it seems that there was a kinship in terms of storytelling with those two series I mean again you, you brought Eddie Friars in and the, the CIA element to Ali uh, to, to Queen's world as much as uh, Sable was a part of the intelligence world, and, and um, it just it made for great action adventure on, on both accounts, with a real sense of a good sense of realism in, in both cases.
1: Um, Eddie Fires was a uh, a fun character to do. Uh, I based him on Archie Goodwin, by the way, <laughs> uh, the editor over at uh, DC Comics at the time, sure. terrific writer himself. Um, <clears throat> Archie had. Uh, Untold depths to his character. I, he was—he had a terrific sense of humor and uh, was just an amazingly creative guy. And I enjoyed working with him a lot. Um, when it when it came down to uh, um, doing those kinds of stories with Green Arrow, it was pretty much logical because what I set up in uh, Longbow Hunters was a situation where he had certainly drawn attention to himself and. Uh, Once they've noticed you, they're not going to just pretend that you've dropped off the face of the planet, especially not when you're in a um, rather interesting profession like Ollie Queen was.
0: (laughs) Now, was that. Was Longbrow Hunters. How much did that uh, project come out of all of the excitement behind Watchmen and Dark Knight? Um, Because it was, I think, one of the first (laughs) prestige format projects after those two initial ones, or maybe they were re- released concurrently. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Uh, they were in the works simultaneously. Okay. Um, I knew, for instance, uh, that Frank was uh, working on uh, The Dark Knight. It hadn't come out yet. Um, when when the project began, when Longbow Hunters began, Mike Gold called me up and asked me if there was any character over at DC that I thought uh, highly enough that I'd want to uh, bury old hatchets and come back to work for D.C. And uh, I told him that I had always felt that I had done such a lousy job on Batman that I'd love to get another chance at that. But just because I knew Frank was working on Dark Knight. I told him that about the time Frank was done, you could probably put a period at the end of that sentence for a long time <laughs> to come. Uh, that, that, you know, essentially he would... Uh, Create the definitive Batman for at least the next 10 years. And uh, Gold said, uh, What about Green Arrow? And I said, Well, you know, it's always been my favorite character, no secret about that. Yep. My favorite comic book character ever. And that even includes the ones that I've created. Um, and then he said, Well, think about this Green Arrow as an urban hunter. And he had me. And that was, that was pretty much it. Um, the, the, I'm sure the Watchmen, thinking back, I'm sure the Watchmen had uh, already come out and was already uh, doing very, very well in the sales, which, of course, made Dark Knight possible um, and led to uh, the prestige format with uh, Green Arrow. So it's all very serendipitous, one hand washing the other, Um different basins but you know same soap
0: gotcha <laughs> gotcha um, on Green Arrow before writing the character you worked with Elliot Magan when he was writing the character am I correct way back when yeah yeah. as a matter of fact uh, my
1: first Green Arrow story um, uh, was written by Elliot and uh, um, I did the, the plot for it the first first story that I ever wrote uh, I, I wrote the plot and uh, Elliot did the dialogue, and uh, it was it was a good combination. Um, I then uh, attempted to sell Julie Schwartz on a, on another uh, story of mine, and I wanted to write that one. But I gave him this scenario that had to do with um, uh, female counterparts to Green Arrow, and um, she was called the Black Arrow. Imagine that, <laughs> and. Uh, By the time I got done with my pitch, uh, this character was a a survivor of uh, the Holocaust, and she was basically going around tracking down uh, Nazi war criminals and knocking them off. Old, old, creaky guys, but even still. Uh, And by the time I was done with my pitch, Julie said, No, 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 you got it all wrong, see? What it is, is it's not a young lady, it's a young boy. And it's the reincarnation of King David, and he's not using a bow and arrow, he's using a sling and rocks. <laughs> and so I said, Look, okay, if, if you want to get somebody else to write it, just go ahead, that's fine, but I'm stepping back up. So they used the, the framework of my plot, and uh, Elliot wrote the, the story. Um, but I never forgot that story, and I filed it away, and. Uh, uh, 15, 18 years later uh, yeah, fifteen years later or so <laughs> I resurrected it and I created the character of Shadow. Yep for
0: Longbow Hunters. Yeah, that was and and what a great character that's still I, I think it's it's interesting how the character has slightly changed, but really when you get down to it, Mike, it's still your green arrow, I think, that they're playing with over there. Uh I I think I kinda like that. It's the truth. They de aged him, I think, a little bit to kind of it's, it's an amalgam of, I think, what uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill were trying to do with the character and what you brought to the character and taking it to the next level. And I know that Neil, am I correct to say that for your art, Neil was an influence on, on your style initially?
1: Oh, huge. Yeah, absolutely. When I was uh, stationed in Saigon uh, in seventy and seventy one, a fellow by the name of Ed Savage showed up um, when I, I was running the night shift at the graphics shop. I was an illustrator in the Air Force. And had um, Savage showed up with a small portion of his comic collection uh, in his footlocker. And among those were the Neil Adams, Daniel O'Neil, Green Arrow books. And... You got to understand. I'd gotten away from comics about the time that I got really seriously into girls. (laughs) Uh, It was very common back in those days, back in the middle part of the last century. (laughs) Um, And so, um, while I had I had been in on the the uh, Silver Age, you know, I had. Spider-Man number one, uh, Fantastic Four number one, Mighty Thor, The Flash, Green Lantern, all this stuff under my bed when I went off to college. I have no idea where they are now, but, uh, um, and never saw them again. Uh, but, but I left. Off comics, just at the point where they were beginning to get away from the really cartoony Bob Kane type Batman stuff, and uh, just beginning to get into uh, uh, drawings that were done a bit more realistically. And all of a sudden, I opened this book, and holy cow, comics had grown up. You had terrific artwork, uh, neil Adams and Dick Giordano. Dick, probably the best inker ever to hit comic books. Yeah. Um, that I don't know of anybody who's got the combination of the sophistication of line and the boldness that it takes to uh, interpret a pencil line uh, that, that could possibly equal Dick. Um, and uh, Neil with his uh, terrific, realistic drawing style, and Danny O'Neill's stories that dealt with real-world problems and essentially real-world characters. This is one of the things that had always attracted me to Green Arrow was the fact that he didn't have any superpowers. He just had this amazing skill, and it wasn't even a super skill. It was something that if you bought a bow today and practiced shooting a 100 arrows a day, I guarantee you, by the end of the first couple of weeks, you'd be shooting bullseyes all the time. Yeah. It, it, all it takes is constant practice and dedication. Just like you know, pick up a guitar. The first time you're going to sound like hell, but in a few years you're going to be really, really good. Um, well, that I liked, and uh, I liked the the comparison between uh, the contrast, I should say, between the two characters of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, both guys fighting on the same side for the same purpose but for two different reasons one believes in the letter of the law and the other believes in the spirit of justice and that's what made um green Arrow such a real character for me so looking at, at uh, neil's work boy i decided right then and there that that was the kind of stuff that i wanted to do up until then i had my eye on becoming the next al cap um really and that so that's pretty much an epiphany um, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, when I broke into comics in the first place, one of the reasons that I got the job was because I could draw in that currently popular style that Neil was drawing in. Mm-hmm. It was nowhere near as equal, uh, but, you know, nobody was ever going to be another Neil Adams. That just isn't going to happen. With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 18 plus. Um, so uh, I, you know, I, for a long time I, I emulated his art as closely as I could and then i uh, made a couple of other discoveries along the line and you can see a pretty dramatic change in my artwork if you look at the cover for Sable issue number one and the cover for Sable issue number two. Uh, what happened in between those two covers was I bought two books, one called The Magic Pen of Joseph Clement Cole, who uh, illustrated mm-hmm. uh, the Sax Romer books, uh, cool. Fu Manchu, okay. uh, King of the Car- King of the Khyber Rifles, um, The Lost World, uh, tons and tons of, of really great, uh, very sophisticated uh, pen illustrations. Um, and the other book that I bought was called The Pencil by Paul Cally. And, uh, those two books together uh, opened my eyes. Uh, I, I discovered a, a way of using line and texture to create depth on the page, uh, um, both in, in Pen and then eventually a pencil. It was uh, Callie's influence that led me to experimenting with uh, pencil on mylar, so I could get that uh, that lined quality um, without having to resort to the pen. And it was the Joseph Clement Cole uh, influence that led me to using uh, textures and directional lines in my illustration. It's uh, it's one of those interesting epiphany moments.
0: And who influenced your writing, Mike? Who uh, who do you think uh, helped you become a better writer? Both in terms of observation and even if uh, there were people either at D.C. Or, or Mike Gold or whoever that was kind of guiding your hand. I mean, as you say, you were plotting as early as the 70s with that Green Arrow story.
1: Well, I, I always used to say that uh, what it took to be a good editor was someone who could spell punctuate and do when to stay the hell out of my way. <laughs> that all went out the window when I started working with Mike Gold. because Mike won't blow smoke. Um, He calls a spade a spade and uh, has a a really... Uh, keen eye for what makes a good story and what doesn't. Uh, he doesn't let me get away with any BS. We've known each other for thirty odd years now, and uh, there is no reason for either of us to lie to one another and and say you're you're a magnificent handsome beast and you are no doubt the love of god because we know that's not true um so uh that in and of itself having a good editor to work with uh, helps phenomenally um i learned an enormous amount about writing for comics from danny o'neill danny taught me what to write but also what not to write how to leave enough room for the artist to interpret uh how to how to um avoid hitting the audience over the head um, you have to have to trust that your audience is going to be at least as intelligent as you are and if you get it they should be able to get it as, as long as you give them intelligent material to follow for instance uh, if there's a uh, uh, an explosion and a building is falling into the street. You don't need someone standing on the street corner yelling, "Holy cow! That big explosion just knocked this building down and it's going to fall on me." Uh, but I've, I've read similar inane stuff in comics before. Um, the 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 other uh, storytelling influence in terms of comics. Uh, came from Milton Kniff. Uh, I'm one of the guys who took that famous artist schools correspondence course in cartooning. Okay. And uh, Milton Kniff, who wrote Steve Canyon, uh, spoke often about uh, writing comic strips uh, in such a fashion that uh, you could get the maximum amount of information onto the page. Uh, And you did that by making sure that the dialogue didn't repeat what the illustration showed mm-hmm. the, the the pictures tell a story and the dialogue tells a story they both advance the plot but in a different fashion so instead of uh, uh the dialogue talking about what's going on in the panel dialogue talks about something else uh, these days in film you call that subtext sure so just like the scene in um uh, say pulp fiction Uh, where the two hitmen are getting ready to go in and, uh, they're a little, a little ahead of time so they're hanging back in the hallway and they're talking about foot rubs. (laughs) <laughs> but really, what they're really what they're talking about is the trouble that John Travolta's character is going to be in later on when he gets involved with uh, his boss's wife.
0: Yep, I hear you. Uh,
1: that's really what that's all about. Certainly. Oh, that's great. No,
0: that's that's a great point.
1: And my other my other uh, favorite writers. Um, well, these days uh, Steinbeck, but it's because I'm getting older, and I thought that I should read them all again. That's cool. Uh, and uh, but the uh, early on, Edgar Rice Burroughs loved his stuff. The very first book I ever read, you know, hardcover book I read as a little kid. Uh, I think I was seven or eight when I read Tarzan the Terrible, <laughs> um, and uh, Mickey Spillane. Oh, that's cool. Spillane's always been my favorite writer and that's that's more because of what he was than what he wrote um he he was this uh, amazingly colorful character in real life larger than life um but he also had some great tips he said he said when you write a book uh, when he writes a book he said uh i write the last chapter first so i know where i'm going and that just makes sense uh, particularly with, uh, a mystery. Because you have to be able to track back and say, okay, that actually happened. The, of course, it, in any mystery, the, the last chapter is the resolution. Mm-hmm. The, the, the final, who done it, why done it, how done it, and how I figured it out. So once you've got that done, you've got a roadmap of where you want to go. Uh, so when I, when I do a story, uh, 99 times out of 100, um, I know exactly how it's going to end before I start with the beginning part. I
0: got
1: you. Uh, There was one time when I wrote myself into a hell of a hole, uh, <laughs> just just backed myself into a corner, uh, painted the floors and the walls around me, and couldn't figure out how I was going to get out. And I was halfway through uh, the wrap-up issue of a two-part story, and I still hadn't figured out how I was going to end it. And, uh, you know, luckily, uh, my muse arrived in the form of Agatha Christie, I think. Uh, she flew in the window and, and, uh, whispered in my ear and, uh, it all came together. <laughs> I was doing a locked room murder mystery and I could not figure out how I was going to explain the fact that the lie, the, that, uh, the bad guy is found lying there. Dead with a bullet in his head. If the door is locked and there's nobody around, and and all of that stuff, and suddenly it, it I twig to it, and that felt pretty good. But I've been <laughs> careful to avoid that ever since.
0: That's cool. You mentioned Burroughs. Uh, you can't help but think of uh, Warlord and its connection to Burroughs' style of and and that pulp style as well of, of the secret worlds and um,
1: you know. Oh yeah, I, I uh, Burroughs uh, Jules Verne too. Sure. Um, I was always a, a huge Jules Verne fan. Ever since I saw Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea when I was a little kid, <laughs> um, that that whole that whole concept of a world within a world was just fascinating to me. Burroughs did it better than anybody. Um, he would create not only an entire world, he'd create a whole culture and a language to go along with it. <laughs> I, you know, not not like. Um, Borat, you know, uh, <laughs> Bor- Borat. Borat is supposed to be uh, from Kazakhstan, yeah. but he's speaking Yiddish. <laughs> but, well, but that's part of the joke. Exactly. That's part of exactly. The joke. Right. Uh, <laughs> hey, you you kind of wonder how, how many other people have slipped something like that uh, in as well. You know, Siegel and Schuster uh, uh, chose the name uh, Jor-el and Kal-el. Uh, in uh, Hebrew, L is God. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's Oh, cool. yes. Uh, uh, m- my name, Mikael, in Hebrew, is who is like God. That's the L is, is God. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I, I have no idea. That's very cool. I have to ask, I know that you were frustrated. The last time you came through Chicago at one of the conventions, it was close to the 25th anniversary of Warlord. And we were all kind of like, hey, what's going to happen? Are you going to do anything? And uh, I was very disappointed that DC went ahead with a Warlord series without you because it made no sense. Unfortunately, I think their attempt wasn't anywhere near what you were able to do with the character. And I, I even enjoyed when Michael Fleischer was, was writing the character for a little while as well. But really, I mean, it's, it makes no sense not to go back to you, given that it's your world and your character and that they were your ideas that you would be able to get back and uh, do more with the character.
1: As they say, what goes wrong comes wrong. <laughs> um, at this at this moment, uh, in fact, I'm I'm working on a proposal for DC for uh, the warlord, and uh, we have high hopes of uh, coming up with a means of um, salvaging the baby from the bathwater. Good. I, that's uh, great, yeah. I think everybody was was. Uh, to a certain amount disappointed with the uh, the results in the uh, in the last attempt um, i thought it was rather odd to begin with that uh, at, at the time that that series was coming out um, they also did a uh, an animated episode of uh... Yes. and they featured all the elements of the Warlord on on that one show. Now, to a certain extent, you could say uh, that was clearly an establishment of territory. You know, scent marking, shall we say. Um, and uh, I can't fault them for that. Um, and uh, I I was actually disappointed, but also intrigued uh, when I didn't get tapped to uh, resurrect the character. Um, I... I was disappointed that they hadn't come to me and said, how about doing something for it, you know? um, If nothing else, a cover or something like that. Sure. Um, But on the other hand, I was curious to see what the story was going to be. Um, Although I I have to say that uh, I read only about five issues of, uh, I think, the eight or ten that they ultimately printed. Um, But I... I was not able at that point to figure out what the story was. Uh, it, it seemed to go so far off the track of the original Warlord that uh, it almost seemed like they could have put another title on it and, and called it something else and been done with it.
0: Yeah, and and that's the thing. And I think you had some interesting moments where you did tie Travis directly to the DCU, and especially in Green Arrow, where it was a lot of fun. to see see him uh, one mistaken for the other
1: Uh, you have you have uh, Dan Jurgens and Mike Gold thank for that one Uh, Dan who had uh, cut his teeth on the warlord Uh, this this is a funny story goes back quite a ways but uh, when I was just getting started out in New York um, I got a fan letter from a 14 year old boy asking me for some advice on how he could get into comics and seven years later, he sent me a portfolio and asked if I had any other advice. And um, within a couple of weeks, I had working on Warlord. Uh, that was Dan Jurgens. So Dan went to Mike Gold and said, "I you know what, you know what I think would be fun? And Dan, of course, was working on Green Arrow at the time. He was drawing, drawing the book and I was writing it. Okay. Uh, he said, you know what I think would be fun is if we did a crossover with... Uh, green arrow and the warlord and now uh, i had spent years fighting the dc universe concept um julie schwartz used to say all Grell's stories take place on a world called earth grills. <laughs> Like grills and, and he was right i, I just <laughs> ignored everything that had been done in the dc universe and but julie backed me up he said you know We've, we've done stories where Superman has drilled through the Earth from one side to the other, and so we know Skartaris can't be down there. Otherwise, <laughs> Superman would have discovered it. So it has to be on a different Earth. It's on Earth ground. And uh, so I, I, I kept the, the superpowers out of it. I, I dealt with fantasy, uh, um, science fiction, high adventure kind of stuff, but I left off the superpowers. And I especially did that with Green Arrow. Right. Uh, I didn't want anything to do with uh, superpowers. I, I changed the location of the character from Star City to Seattle to put Ollie firmly in the real world. I did away with all the trick arrows. The boomerang arrow scared the hell out of me. Right? <laughs> I've, I've thrown a boomerang, and when it came back, it darn near killed me. Uh, that was that was it for boomerangs in me. Uh, the lock picker arrow I thought was really stupid. Um, so I, I did away with all of that stuff, and I said, okay, I'm going to put this character in, in the real world and write about real world stuff, and I'm just going to ignore the rest of the DC universe, pretend that they're off someplace else, um, even when I did a story that had Hal Jordan show up I never called him Green Lantern I uh, never showed him in costume I just called him Hal mm-hmm. uh, the audience knew who it was but uh, they didn't mind because it was a story more about people than superpowers I you. Um, so along comes Dan and says this would be really great let's do uh, uh, the Warlord and Green Arrow and I said absolutely no bloody way and Mike Gold pipes up and says well Look at it this way. It's based on the concept that you only know how to draw one face. (laughs) And I just cracked up. And I went, okay, I can make a story out of that. So the the story is that uh, uh, Oliver Queen opens the door to a knock, and standing there is Travis Morgan, who proceeds to knock him on his ass. (laughs) And the reason is that Travis Morgan has come to... Seattle and the entire time he's been there people have been trying to kill him thinking that he's Oliver Queen that
0: was great though and that's and that's a thing to two very different characters and everything and, and you made a way to make it work and it was oh, the yeah, well and Travis Morgan there's uh, the the sci-fi series uh, farscape and and you had John Crichton the, the American astronaut and I always felt as much as Travis adopted himself to Skartaris, he had always still felt like there was this Regular guy figuring out you know this this fantasy ele- you know, world and everything and I always I always thought that was kind of interesting and I always liked how he was able to straddle both the real world when he would show like when he did show up in Green Arrow and and how uh, well he was able to adapt himself in, in Skartaris to be the Warlord as well and I just thought so you know interesting characters.
1: That's kind of the key to uh, making a character like that work. He's essentially a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're anything like me when I was a youngster, um, reading the Burroughs stuff, I, I, I love his, his stories like John Carter of Mars, yep. um, you know, the stories about Pellucidar, uh, Tarzan to a certain extent, uh, because it, it dealt with people who were thrown into extraordinary situations and having to deal with it um you know Travis Morgan is a fish out of water who who survives uh, by brain as much as by brawn uh, although in a lot of instances he doesn't use the brain a whole heck of a lot Um and uh, he's a he's a guy who started off with a lot of noble ideas about making a change in the world he sort of lost his way along the line um, and that, of course, is part of what makes the character interesting. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a jerk. He's never figured out exactly why, after leaving his wife alone to bear a child, run the kingdom, whatever, while he's off running around with Shakira the cat lady and uh, having a great old time, how come when he walks through the door, she knocks him on his butt? And every time he comes home, she breaks his nose, and he still hasn't figured out why. <laughs>
0: Would you ever? I know that DC owns Warlord. Would you ever want to create a character from that same whole cloth? Because I know that the original concept, and you could talk about this, started as a comic strip that you. Oh, yes. Right? That's what you brought to, to Julie Schwartz initially?
1: Absolutely, as a matter of fact, uh, it's called, uh, the Savage Empire. Okay. Uh, the, the original concept was, uh, sort of like a, King, uh, Connecticut Yankee in Atlantis. Okay. Uh, Jason Cord was the character, he was an archaeologist who finds himself catapulted back through time to ancient Atlantis, uh, before it sunk. And part of the mystery he's trying to solve is what caused uh, the destruction of uh, the continent. Um, what he doesn't realize, of course, is that he's pretty much responsible for it. But uh, it, it had uh, a lot of the same elements. Um, the uh, the villain in the piece was even called Deimos, and I was going to change that uh, as well, but uh, it was just such a great name that I wound up keeping it. <laughs> I had... Uh, been working for DC for some time, and when Atlas Comics started up, I heard that they were offering one hundred bucks a page, which was about two and a half times what DC was paying at the time. Wow. And um, so I, along with a lot of other guys, went trooping over their offices and uh, pitched them on various things. And one of the things that I had in my in my kit bag was the comic strip, of Savage Empire. And uh, Jeff Rovin liked it. He went for it big time and um, wanted to uh, spring ahead with the thing. And I said, well, look, let me get a couple issues in the can first because I've got a gig over at D.C. that I don't want to jeopardize, but I want to demonstrate to them that I can do this and do that, and I'll work for both of you guys. No problem. So I walked from there over to D.C.'s offices, and it was maybe 20 minutes Crossed town with traffic, and uh, when I got there, Julie, uh, not Julie Schwartz, uh, Carmine Infantino was waiting for me uh, in the hallway, and he said, "I just got a telephone call from Jeff Rovin, who said he's got you tied up for two books a month." <laughs> <laughs> I went, "Oops, you know, that isn't exactly true." Um, you know, and and Carmine was frankly offended, and. Uh, on a, you know, He was maybe easily offended back in those days, but uh, um, was sort of like the godfather, you know? <laughs> you don't go outside the family kind of thing. Sure. And, and he said, well, why didn't you bring it here? And I told him that I, I knew that DC hadn't had much luck with um, sword and sorcery type books in the past, and I didn't think they'd be interested. And uh, he said, well, why didn't you let me take a look and let me be the judge? so we're walking into his office and as we're walking in it dawns on me that you know he's not going to buy this not going to buy it in the, in the form that it is right now um but as luck would have it as we walk in the door the telephone is ringing and uh, he answers the call and in the two minutes or three minutes that he was talking on the phone i uh, recreated essentially the whole story and uh Changed the location from uh, Atlantis to Skartaris, the land at the center of the earth. Uh Uh, uh, Changed the character from an archaeologist to a U.S. spy pilot. I knew something about that because I used to deal with a lot of those guys. I could write it with a little bit of authority. Um, And uh, essentially changed a lot of the things around. uh, And. Managed to BS my way through a pitch session, and he said, Show it to Joe Orlando, and if Joe likes it, we'll give it a year's run. Guaranteed. Wow. And then he canceled it after three episodes. <laughs> but it came back. But it came back. Well, Jeanette Kong walked in and canceled Carmine. <laughs>
0: there you go. Yep. You know, and that was that interesting time when DC had so many, uh, they, and Joe Orlando, I think, was behind a lot of those uh, books that were, you know, you had the Shadow Books, and you had all the Street and Smith licensed properties, and then, um, you, and then I guess in the back of Warlord, uh, Claw the Unconquered started in the back of Warlord, is that correct? Right. And, right. um, Arion started in the back of, uh, Warlord as well? That's right. So, I mean, it, you know, it seemed like there was, you know, at least an attempt, I, I, from both companies, because I know Marvel as well, obviously Marvel was having great success with Conan, but, um... I thought it was interesting that, you know, there was a real attempt to kind of grab at other genres beyond the capes and tights.
1: Sure. They they recognized that it was a, a, a coming trend in in the types of stories that people were interested in. As a matter of fact, if, if anything, it was uh, just about at the crest. Uh, you know, it wasn't past the crest yet. Uh, we managed to ride that crest Um Conan kicked down a lot of doors. It really did. made it Made it possible for the Warlord. Uh, without without the Conan series, uh, the Warlord never would have gotten done.
0: Gotcha.
1: I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, but it also, because of the nature of the story that I did in the Warlord, I think I also opened a few doors as well. Uh, because I wrote a story that wasn't bound to necessarily one particular genre. I could do uh, high adventure, I could do science fiction, I could do sword and sorcery. It could it could be anything, anywhere. It's one of the reasons why I fought against uh, creating a map of skartaris
0: <laughs> I forget you said this. Go ahead, yeah. This episode of Word Balloon is brought to you by AlexRossArt.com. Alex is a brand new graphic novel coming out from Marvel and Abrams Books. Fantastic Four, full circle. It comes out September 6th. It's a rainy night in Manhattan, and not a creature is stirring except... For the thing, Ben Grimm, when an intruder suddenly appears inside the Baxter building, the Fantastic Four find themselves surrounded by a swarm of invading parasites. These carrion creatures, composed of negative energy, come to Earth using a human host as a delivery system. But for what purpose? And who is behind this untimely invasion? The Fantastic Four have no choice but to journey to the Negative Zone, an alien universe comprised entirely of antimatter, risking not just their own lives, but the fate of the cosmos. Fantastic Four Full Circle is the first long-form work written and illustrated by acclaimed artist Alex Ross, who revisits a classic Lee Kirby story from the 60s and introduces the storyline for a new generation of readers. Bold, vivid colors, his trademark visual storytelling, Ross takes Marvel's first team of superheroes to places only he can illustrate. The book also features a special poster jacket with the front flap unfolding to reveal an all-new fully-painted origin story of the Fantastic Four. Again, Fantastic Four, full circle, out September 6th. For more details, go to alexrossart.com.
1: They they wanted me to draw a map of the world, and I absolutely refused. Why would you want to establish a boundary on imagination? Because I'll tell you what, fans of, how to say this, Uh, the word fan is derived from fanatic, and fanatics are rarely seen. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's my favorite quote of all time. Uh, fans will want to know how you could possibly have your character in a desert country in one episode, and the very next episode he could be in the Arctic without having him pass through the jungle that lies between. <laughs> uh, to my way of thinking, that just gets in the road of good storytelling. Uh, it gets in, gets in the way of what you need to do within the time frame that you have. Take a look at the old uh, Wanted Dead or Alive TV series it was great. Steve they had yeah. 30 minutes you know, minus commercial time, so right. they had 20 odd minutes to play with. And in that 20 odd minutes, you had, uh, you established a storyline, you introduced all the characters, uh, created the conflict, the hero arrives, solves the problem, and they end it. Uh, it ends as a morality play, and they pay it all off in a half an hour, and nobody goes home bored.
0: <laughs> would you want to bring back that original concept at all, and, and try and do something on your own, or you know, as opposed to having to, you know, kind of hope that You should would...
1: say that. Okay. Um, I actually, uh, I actually got a novel in the works. Um, oh, great. Yeah, I'm uh, slowly but surely working my way through it. I've, I've done uh, a screen treatment as well that uh, I'm showing around waiting to hear something. Uh, but you know, my grandmother used to say, spit in one hand and wish in the other and see which one fills up the fastest. <laughs> I was about 30 before I discovered that grandma had cleaned it up for us kids. <laughs> Uh, but the um, the novel is is coming along quite nicely. I'm I'm hoping to do uh, a series of perhaps four, at least three, but perhaps four.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! That's great. I loved uh, I loved the Sable novel. Um, had how many novels have you written? Uh, just the one okay. so far. Okay, I was yeah. wondering. I, I thought that was the only one, and I wasn't certain. So that's that's great to hear because I yeah. I loved the Sable, Sable novel. I thought it was wonderful, and it came at a time where it was just nice to see the character come back and. Uh, I'm glad that you, you know, are following through with the new stories on Comic Mix that eventually will be new trades as well. And it was it was a blast getting those reprints from IDW as well. It's, um, I really felt First Comics especially, all you guys, all the creators over there and the editors were really putting out a very unique product. And uh, there was a reason why you guys lasted as long as you did. I think, you know, it it, it absolutely filled a need. And I, I would imagine sales had to have been good enough for you guys to continue. I, you must have been doing well for it to have run as long as it did.
1: It was a great time. It was a terrific time to be in comics, to be with that crowd. We had some of the best creators in the business. Uh, you had Howard Chaykin, you had uh, John Ostrander, Tim Truman, um, just Boy, I can't even can't even begin to name all the super talented people that were involved at one time or another over there at, at First Comics. And ultimately what killed it wasn't lack of sales. It was just run into the ground by a few of the guys who were on the top. That's all.
0: There you go. Well, I'm glad you guys were able to get your characters back because I know that's the only reason why we hadn't seen more product in the ensuing years, at least it sounded like that from the things that you and Mike Golden, uh, Ostrander, and Truman were saying when uh, when it's exactly.
1: th- some of that stuff. Uh, come from or? the from the start, from back in the old oh lord, um, I suppose I have to go back to uh, doing Star Slayer for uh, Pacific Comics. Okay, I was actually the uh, I was the first. Uh, creator to sign with Pacific Comics uh, for the uh, original independent publishers. Um, Jack Kirby was second, but Jack's book came out first because Jack could draw an entire book in the time that we've been speaking here. <laughs> uh, he was just an amazingly talented guy, and and could churn out stories like nobody's business. Just seemed to flow from the eye. Um, but all of that was designed to create a working environment for creators where you could own your own characters and benefit from the development, um, unlike what was going on uh, at Marvel and DC uh, at the time. You know, the standard was that everything was work for hire back then. Um, you know, The Warlord was done under the work for hire uh, system. Sure. And uh, while uh, they changed that up Greatly over the years, uh, DC Comics still owned the Warlord. Uh, however, they do pay me a royalty, which is very nice. Well, that's good. Um, they, that was instated, uh, after the fact, uh, retroactively, which I have to credit, uh, Paul Levitz with that and Jeanette Kahn. Oh, that's great. For making that happen. Um, that, that was all part of it though. And, uh, The the truth is, if it hadn't been for uh, uh, outfits like First Comics and Pacific Comics uh, starting up uh, another avenue for creators, it's very unlikely that people would have ever been able to own their own projects or get paid serious
0: royalties for them. Wow. Well, I know Star Slayer started, uh, that's where Grimjack came from, right? Right. I mean that's you know that's the thing. It's it's really cool that 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 group of guys that eventually did settle at first and everything. And you and you mentioned a lot of the key players there. It's very cool how you were all able to you know contribute and work together. I Know well, Hillary well The Rocketeer. And yes, Dave Stevens and uh, the Rocketeer, and and wasn't uh, Nexus part of first as well? Absolutely. There you go, Steve Roode and Mike Barron, of course. Mike Barron. Yep. And I know uh, a couple other uh, artists that have done work for you guys directly, Hillary Barda and Tom Sutton. Was part of, were part of that uh, group of guys that I think eventually either worked on Star Slayer and, and uh, certainly I know Grimjack with Ostrander later on, things like that.
1: Is there a show? Yeah, we had an amazing crew, an amazing crew.
0: Yeah, I, I, and also uh, even guys like Del Close. I've talked to, uh, Austin, the time I got to interview Ostrander, I asked him for a few Del Close stories.
1: Del was He so, so. was, was just a great guy. Uh, if, if you spoke to John, I'm sure you know what Dell's last words were. Dell's last words on this planet ooh, when he passed away were, I'm tired of being the funniest one in the room.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah. great yeah. guy. Yeah he, told, yeah, he told me about uh, that day that he passed and all the different people that kind of came to see him yeah. off and everything. And, of course, now we know his, uh, his skull continues to perform in uh, Shakespearean uh, plays. At the Goodman I, Theater in Chicago, I'm sure it does.
1: It, it, it may even continue
0: after all hours. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, for people who don't know, if you haven't heard my Ostrander interview, Del Close, a, a comic genius who uh, was very involved with uh, Second City and later the Improv Olympic, and was uh, a guiding force in a lot of uh, your favorite Saturday Night Live alums from the early days of the '70s to, through the Mike Myers and the Chris Farleys and. Uh, even the Vince Vaughn's and Jon Favreau's that have had their moments studying right. that so close. Del
1: will taught guys like Belushi and Aykroyd their craft.
0: Yep, absolutely. No, it's cool. And and a guy that ended up writing for First Comics and working with you guys on, uh, I know, Munden's Bar, for example, under uh, of uh, the... Uh, Jack, uh backup stories and things like that. I don't know. I don't know if you ever uh, co-wrote or if you drew any of uh, Dell's stories. Uh, no, I didn't. But uh, Dell and I shared a few moments um,
1: when uh, he was doing Wasteland at uh, DC Comics. Yes, yeah, Wasteland was largely true stories of Dell's life that people would never believe. Uh, Dell told me that when he had gone down to New Orleans, uh, he wanted to. Uh, Visit a real obeah woman, and uh, you know voodoo pri- pri- uh, priestess. Yes. Up in the bayous. So, Dell had uh, actually appeared on the Sable television series. He played the publisher of uh, <laughs> the children's uh, books. That's cool. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. and... Uh, <laughs> And he said, so he he gets in this airboat with a guy who's going to take him up and introduce him to an Obeo woman. And this is all pretty much spur of the moment. And they go miles and miles and miles and hours and hours up the river, back into the bayous, so far from electricity, so far from telephone or they didn't have cell phones back then no no telephone no television certainly coming out that far Dell walks in the the door and the first thing this woman says to him is so what did Mike Grell think of a sable television series
0: <laughs> Nice. <laughs> You know, that's a great series, and I'm glad you brought it up, because we we, we talked about it briefly when I spoke to John Ostrander, and uh, I would point out again, if because if I don't think there are trades of Wasteland, if you go through the dollar bins, look for that series, because it is an incredibly interesting series. I don't know if it was a Vertigo uh, imprint story or not, but it certainly has that Vertigo flavor, and it's just, yeah, what a, what a crazy life that guy led. I, I know Ostrander tells some stories of... Uh, Dell in a sensory deprivation tank, uh, as they did. The sandwich from God. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) It wasn't so much a sensory deprivation tank. Uh, What it was was... um, uh, Dell and one of his uh, other actor buddies I think actor at the time perhaps who were students uh, but they they found out that the US government was looking for guinea pigs to test drugs yes. so, so they were they were going to they were going to get free drugs from Uncle Sam and the drug of choice at that moment was LSD and they wanted they wanted to see what would happen if you put someone into uh, an enclosed environment and uh, it wasn't a deprivation tank, it was uh, actually a decompression chamber that they had at uh, Great Lakes Naval Station uh, okay. in Illinois oh, and uh, they, they didn't have them under pressure or anything like that, they just had them inside and, uh, and the lid was closed but yeah, that's, that's an amazing story and if you got it on, a, on another interview, you have to go to that podcast and listen to it because it's really worthwhile
0: <laughs> Thank you, I I preached the, cross, uh, the crossover promo, promo for that. Now, I want to ask because uh, I want a couple of things that you did, little one-shot things. I know you worked on Tarzan, and I wanted to touch uh, on that briefly with your uh, love of Edgar Wright. I that had to be awesome to be able to do a, a, a Tarzan series. You've
1: done a couple oh, of it was amazing, just absolutely amazing. Um, Archie Goodwin had been writing the strip with Gil Kane and uh, he phoned me up and uh said that uh, he and Bill were leaving to do something else and he asked me uh, one of the silliest questions uh would you mind if i recommended you for the job and what i mind it was it was what i really wanted to do in the first place um, and despite the fact that i had had geared myself toward uh, a drawing in that greener Neil adams kind of a style I still really wanted to be a newspaper comic strip artist, uh, which is why I had the samples of uh, Savage Empire uh, in my bag when I went to D.C. Sure. The, uh, the medium was just fascinating to me, you know, it was something that came into everybody's home every Sunday. We couldn't wait for it when we were kids, you know, it, was, it was a really big deal. and um, It was the most fun I've ever had doing comics. Bar none. It was the absolute most fun. Uh, the night I was working on my first Sunday page, uh, I was finishing up the color guide, and it dawned on me that six weeks from now, there were going to be millions of people. Okay, a few hundred people <laughs> who are going to read this in the newspapers <laughs> all over the world. And I got so excited, I started I honestly started to hyperventilate. And then I started to laugh. It was just hysterically funny, and I had to go lie down. Uh, when I when I came to bed, my wife thought I was a wacko, and I've, of course I was. But you know, this is part of the job description for cartoonist.
0: That's great. Well, you did a year and a half, I guess, on the on the strip. Yeah, I did
1: uh, actually just right around two years. Okay. Uh, uh, from i started in 81 and finished up in 83 that's awesome uh, I, I pulled the pin when i discovered they were paying me the same as they were paying burn Hogarth in 1953 Jesus
0: that sounds typical unfortunately jeez man now and um and then the other thing i wanted to ask about because i remember it and it i and uh, was your eclipse james bond uh, series permission to die yeah and, and i really uh i loved that and i was Glad when it was finally finished, and I, I, I was bummed that it, it unfortunately took as long as it did for that final book. But it was a it was a great take on. on uh, that that final book was in the can for like eight or nine months before it was ever printed. Was that just all the all the craziness that was going on with Eclipse that was keeping right. keeping it from going right. getting released? There, uh, uh,
1: it was it was in the can for so long that uh, uh, what I had begun is a story about. Um, helping someone escape from behind the Iron Curtain. By the time the final episode aired, <laughs> um, the Iron Curtain
0: had collapsed. It was after Glassnost, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. Oops. <laughs> but it was this great classic-looking Bond. And I've been enjoying, uh, Titan has been releasing the uh, the comic strips uh, from the Daily Mail.
1: Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, Wow, yeah. I'm going to have to uh, grab those up
0: they've been a pleasure to read and it, it reminded me because really I read I read your Bond first um, because it was always sporadic and that was before even Dark Horse kind of brought back Bond in the in the 90s when they did
1: and in fact I, it was just before Dark Horse got it uh, Eclipse lost the contract uh, with um, Glidstone um, who controls the literary rights there you go you know Pretty much lack of performance on on Eclipse's part. That's too um, bad, man. Because so, so I went to Dark Horse, and uh, I, I thought that was a, a a really good choice.
0: It was, a, yeah. They they did great work, and I, I enjoyed everything McGregor did, and and uh, and certainly Paul Galesi had a great take on that character as well. I thought you had a great uh, take on it, and I was uh, hoping to see more Bond from you down the road.
1: I've only done uh, one Bond illustration since that uh, for a London-based magazine, um, sort of the, uh, a take on uh, James Bond in New York, and they contacted me. Um, my, my last connection with Bond was when they cast Daniel Craig as James Bond, and uh, the L.A. Times called me up to ask me what my opinion was. Not that it counts for a whole hell of a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, um, I thought I thought Craig was a good choice. Oh, yeah. That's Especially right. because I, I knew what they were trying to do with the character. You know, I read all the old Bond books from way back when and uh, knew that there was a concerted effort afoot to make this alteration, uh, to, to bring Bond into a more competitive line with uh, a couple of the other uh, movie franchises that were out at the time. You know, they had uh, Mission Impossible two had already come out. They had high hopes for Mission Impossible three, uh, which didn't exactly come about. But um, we also had the uh, the Bourne yes franchise.
0: Absolutely. No, I thought Casino Royale was a nice uh, kick in the pants for the franchise, and it, it seems to have kind of righted the ship again. And i and I'm a huge fan of the books as well, and I've enjoyed the series. But I think. It was time for something new, and it seems like they found the right formula to kind of uh, re energize the character.
1: Yeah, there's always going to be a, a standard formula to uh, James Bond in a, in a certain sense. You know, the, the nature of the character is that he's always going to be coming up against some villain who has some un. Conceivable plan for destroying the planet, or ruling the world, or doing something or other, and it's always going to involve beautiful women. Sure, you know, right there, <laughs> uh, you got my vote. Uh, and, and then the, the the choices that you make from that point on, though, are really important. Uh, you can handle it uh, as they did with the Daniel Craig character. Uh, very seriously real world uh, much more so than, than most of the other Bond stuff or you can go as far astray as uh, some of the Roger Moore tongue-in-cheek stuff uh, You know, the Moonraker for instance uh, my least favorite of all the Bond movies ever uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was, it was so camped up that it, it was a cartoon of James Bond it wasn't really James Bond at all and uh, then to see them uh, come back and, and do some really good stuff, it was very interesting. Roger Moore did make a, a, a few really good Bond films. Um, I thought uh, um, For Your Eyes Only yep. was really quite good, uh, but it was Moore's least favorite of the whole bunch that he did.
0: Oh, that's disappointing, because, yeah, you're right, that was kind of a return to the more grounded character, as, and it was the next film after Moonraker. So it was nice to see that they kind of got back to basics and had a very good, coherent espionage plot, which sometimes right, right. seemed to escape them as as the films progressed. So I uh, no, I agree with you, and I think you're right. I think they're like, I think half and half of Moore's films. There are like three or four really good films, and then there's a couple that you just kind of roll your eyes and go, "Oh well, they were a little too tongue in cheek and a little too silly, or got way too campy." In the case of Moonraker, a well, okay. the thing about it yeah.
1: is that Connery could do humor as well. Uh, In fact, all the other guys managed to get it in there in in some fashion or another, but it seemed like Roger Moore spent a lot of time rolling his eyes and mugging for the camera almost as if he's going, I'm playing comedy now, you know, Uh, and and really the best comedy works when it's slipped in surreptitiously. I'm with you. Sneaks up on you. (laughs) I just watched one of the the funniest bad movies I've ever seen last night, uh, Snakes on a Plane. And, I still seen it. and it's, 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 uh, it aspires to be a B movie, uh, but it's, it's so funny. It, it makes up for it. It's very entertaining.
0: I'm gonna have to watch it. You can,
1: you can get away with, uh, a lot of stuff. You know, humor has its place. Um, well, is one of the reasons why I've always tried to use as much of it as possible, uh, in the stories that I write. Uh, but it, it works in the, in the context of the scene. And it has to work in the context of the scene. I was really cheesed off at my editor, uh, Brian Thompson, who edited the fable novel for me. I had what I thought was one of the funniest lines of the entire book, and he redlined it. And and, uh, I went, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, You know, he just uh, deleted my, my funniest joke. He said, yes, but when does it happen? He said, take a look at the scene that's going on around it. And you tell me if that joke belongs there, and he was right. You know, I never did get to use it. But I, I will, and I'm not going to tell you what it was right now.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, that's good because I wanted to come out on a on a new Sable story. That'll be great. I remember this. i se- also have another Sable novel in the works. That's Excellent. The oh, that's great to hear. I remember the series, and uh, it was you know contemporary with the, with the comic, and uh, you know it, it didn't last long. But I think comic fans were well aware of it. That were reading comics at the time. And uh, I know that's kind of a bittersweet experience as far as uh, how... funny. Uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. Uh, but
1: but some good did come out of it. Rene Russo made her acting debut Amazing. as Eden Kendall. Yep. Uh, that in and of itself is worth the price of admission, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, when when she came on screen, you couldn't take your eyes off her. And, and I told her so when I, when I met her. I told her then. That I was convinced that she was going to be a major star. And she blushed right down to her toenails and thanked me profusely. And I said, I didn't have anything to do with it. I just, I see it on screen. I see it when when you talk, the way you walk, the way you can't take your eyes off you on the screen. And, and it certainly came out to be true. Um, the the thing that went wrong with the television series, uh, let's see, where do I begin? Um... The premise for Sable was that uh, he was the opposite of every superhero, every comic book character that you ever read, okay? Standard comic book character. By day, he's the mild-mannered fill-in-the-blank. By night, he becomes the Dark Avenger. Yes. So I turned that completely on its head, and I said, no, no, no. Everybody knows he's Mr. Blood and Guts, Mr. Anything-for-a-buck-for-hire. You could look in the telephone book under blood slash guts and you'll find a picture of sable on the yellow pages uh, but what almost nobody knows is that he's a closet nice guy he writes children's books and the only reason he puts on that silly disguise is because his agent has got him under a contract that says she can book him into personal appearances and he doesn't want the his knuckle-dragging buddies down at the hairy-chested guys' club to know that he's got this soft, gentle side. Um, he, he won't stop because he's greedy as hell, but uh, there is that going for him. Um, but everybody everybody knows he's Mr. Blood and Guts, and the BB character, it's just a pen name. It's not a secret identity, none of that stuff. Um but ABC took that and said, no, 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 you got it all wrong, see. Uh, you just created this thing. We're going to tell you how it is. Oh, yeah. See, by day, he's the mild-mannered children's writer, and by <laughs> night, get this, he becomes a dark avenger. I'm gesturing with my hands like, like you can see me. Oh, yeah, here. no, but I know what but, you mean. But That's... just picture uh, a, dinner, a Sunday dinner at an Italian family's house, okay? That's what's going on in the room with me right now. Um, so they, they uh, proceeded to do this, and uh, they lasted two whole episodes before it was canceled. I got a phone call from the producer, uh, Dick Rossetti, who said, uh, you know, uh, we've got uh, uh, episode four coming up, and from there on, you know, we got six episodes we're going to shoot, and we're going to change it, and we're going to make it like you wrote it. Well, too, too late, folks. You know, there was no way that they were going to, uh, be called back after the hiatus. Just what? one of those
0: things. Who, who was it Nick? Knight? Who played Sable? I, I'm trying to remember because I was... Louis keep... Van Bergen. Okay, because I know um, that Gene Simmons had a had a very unhealthy love of Sable and really wanted to play the character. And you might have been able to get a movie made if, if you know things had happened. I know that there was an, a, attempts to, but oh yeah,
1: Gene Gene's <laughs> been. Uh, Huge Sable fan right from the get-go, and I don't think it has that much to do with the face paint, although he may have seen a, a kindred spirit there. Um, now, uh, Gene was uh, a big comic book fan, and yep. I, I knew that he read Sable way back when. Uh, he wanted to play the character, and uh, he managed to uh, uh, get his agency to uh, effectively backdoor the rights it uh, under development so he could play the role and um, uh, somewhere in the course of production uh, within about the first week or or so it was decided that uh, he wasn't right for the part and they replaced him uh, with Lou Van Bergen Um, but if you look really closely in a pilot episode uh, get out your DVD, folks, um, your bootleg DVD, for which I'm not getting a single penny. And uh, single frame it. There's a scene where Sable comes through the door of his apartment wearing a trench coat and a fedora. And uh, look at the outline of the character's face and head. And you can tell that it's Gene Simmons. Jeez.
0: Unbelievable. Um- so. Go ahead, I'm
1: sorry. I, I was going to say, so, so he, is, he is on camera there, er, ever so briefly. Uh, but uh, Gene recognized that uh, he wasn't uh, going to be uh, right for the role there, and he was a total gentleman about it. He stepped out and made room for somebody else because he really liked the character. And then uh, years later, I had just finished uh, the Sable novel and, and the screenplay um, more or less simultaneously. I had uh, begun the novel, and I started the screenplay, then I finished the novel, and I finished the screenplay, and uh, sold the novel, and the telephone rings, and it's Gene Simmons. And he said he was producing these days, and who owned the rights to Sable? And I said, I do. And he said, well, I think I can get this movie done. So we talked about it, and uh, he had a good grasp on it. Um, they booked... Um, they bought my screenplay, but, you know, in, in the real world of Hollywood, that just means that they bought it and they own the rights to it. Um, and then they hired Steven D'Souza, who did uh, Die Hard and a bunch of other stuff, uh, wrote Schwarzenegger's Commando movie, and God, I can't remember all the stuff that he's done, and... Um, and uh, they got him to uh, write the screenplay, and we were just about at green light. Uh, they were, in fact, trying to uh, get a hustle through ahead of an impending uh, screen actor's strike. And uh, the cutoff was the Ides of March, and as of about March 9th, they said, you know, it's it's about 90% there, but we don't want to push it uh, rather than rush this thing in and and try to do it too fast and and come up with something that's less than what it deserves uh we're just going to uh, put it on hold until the strike is done and then uh start shooting uh, new york scenes in uh early winter uh, which is fine because that's the way the screenplay was set up okay. uh it took place in new york right around christmas time um and of course in africa and they'd be able to uh shoot the african scenes pretty much any time um and then 9-11 came along, Wow! and uh, Gene called me up and, and said, you yeah, know, deal's done. He lost the backing on, I think it was five films that he had funded, uh, all with one telephone call, uh, because it was all foreign capitalization, and uh, all the foreign money guys were pulling their money out of the United States in bucket loads. Wow. So... Now, back to the old drawing board. The rights reverted, and uh, I'm currently working on a new draft of the screenplay, and uh, eventually somebody will make it.
0: I hope so, man, because, yeah, it's a great character, and I think, um, again, as, as we've discussed in this interview, it, it speaks to the times, and I think especially with what's going on now, even more so. And it would be really, you know, look forward to uh, Sable's view of the current contractor as opposed to, you know, the the career he the career he chose and the you know the yeah
1: it's a different world it's yeah. a
0: different world for Donerso sure. um sure.
1: back in the old days uh, uh a mercenary uh hired gun uh contractor well, we didn't have it, uh turned back then um, but it it conjured up a um image uh, possibly uh, a bit on the romantic side or possibly not depending on how you looked at it yes Uh, uh, like a brotherhood uh, more so than a gang of hired guns and uh, these days of course what you're looking at is uh, basically a civilian army yeah it's a, a there there can be no question in my mind that uh, Blackwater water uh, maybe civilian contractors but
0: they're doing the Army's work exactly exactly and yeah it's 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 it really does you're right it changes the perception of what was uh, the soldier of fortune and the mercenary and what they are today and yeah I, I just think it's a stark contrast and it's very I think it, it screams for some interesting story ideas so I think that uh, I, I hope you I, I hope you get to uh, you know Pursue it in, in the, the, the stuff you're doing. I've had, I've
1: had two or three fresh ideas while we've been speaking. Wonderful, man.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. I, can I briefly, because I know we've t- been talking for 90 minutes, can I briefly ask you about The Legion? Sure. Okay. I, I, you know, that was when I first discovered your work as, as, a, as a kid, and I really enjoyed your run on The <laughs> Legion um, with guys like Jim Shooter and Carrie Bates, and I see that Shooter is back writing The Legion and stuff uh uh, I don't know if you've talked to them about even uh, trying to get involved, or even if you have any interest in going back to uh, where the Legion is these days, the Legion of Superheroes.
1: I did a cover for the uh, Action Comics uh, story that... Um, the current story? Features, yeah, uh, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes. Yes. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah. It's an alternative cover. Oh, okay. It just came out. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun and, and a bit of a challenge. I was interested to see... Uh, uh, the evolution of some of the characters—it's uh, it, like going home. Uh, sometimes it can be going home to a class reunion and, and discovering that you're, you know, remembering last minute that your nickname used to be Stinky. Uh, you know, so so it's not always pleasant, but there, there's there's this great nostalgic bit. I, I still remember. Uh, almost all of the characters, I can still draw nearly all of the costumes from memory. Uh, but that's mostly because over the years I've had a lot of requests for uh, sketches and commissions and stuff. Um, the Legion fans are, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most loyal fans I've ever encountered in my life. Um, with the possible exception of that one Brittany guy uh, on YouTube... <laughs> The uh, Legion fans are are rabid and they're loyal. They, they once they take you to their heart, they will always embrace you, no matter how bad you become or where you go or what you do. Um, it does have its downside because every now and then one will show up with a copy of a book I did, you know, 35 years ago, and say, you know, this is the best work you ever did. And, and you don't know what to say. You just thank them politely for all the food and uh, for paying your rent for all those years. And uh, um, try to understand that, you know, to them at that moment, that's probably what it represented. You know, when, when you uh, find an old comic book um, that you had when you were a kid, it's, it's like finding buried treasure. An old pal of mine used to own a comic strip, comic comic strip, comic shop uh, in the Twin Cities. And he was right next door to uh, an antique shop. And one day there were some truckers delivering a big load of furniture next door. And every time they'd make a pass by his window, this one guy would always stop and he'd look in. So they finish unloading the truck, and the guy comes into the shop. He looks around, looks around, and all of a sudden he freezes there in the case is this uncle scrooge carl burke's comic wow, you know maybe 53 54 and he says i had that comic when i was a kid and he said i want it you know and he, he whips out his wallet and and the owner said uh that's i gotta tell you that's 80 dollars and the guy said i don't care i had that comic book when i was a kid so uh he takes the book out and um Uh, The the guy pays for it, and uh, my pal says, "Uh, would you like me to put that in a Mylar bag for you? And the guy says, no, take it like this. And he takes the comic, he folds it twice, and sticks it in his back pocket. And out the door he goes, climbs up into his truck, sits on it, (laughs) and drives away. (laughs) And, And the owner was flabbergasted. He was just stunned until it dawned on him he hadn't sold that guy a comic book what he had sold him was a piece of his childhood you bet and that's the way it is with legion fans they they probably read that book when they were kids and it was their favorite book at the time it'll always be their favorite book that's really the way it ought to be with comics you know um it it ought to be something that uh uh, instead of something that resides in a plastic bag never to be touched by human hands, uh, it's, it should be something that was taken out and read and dog-eared and brutalized and beat up, maybe folded in half and sat on a couple of times, uh, but they, they should be read. They shouldn't be just stuck away in the dark.
0: I completely agree. I'm glad that you can appreciate the perspective of where these Legion fans are when they t- when they tell you that that was your great, your best stuff. Because I'm happy to say that I have enjoyed what you've done through the years. And um, I, as I, as we've been talking, I've been looking at some of the pages on uh, the comic mix page of Ashes of Eden and uh, look forward to reading the entire story. Also look forward to The Pilgrim as well. And uh, I'm really glad that you uh, continue to uh, create interesting stories and, and are as interesting as of an artist as you are as a writer. So I appreciate your time and uh, direct everyone to ComicMix.com to uh, check out the work, the current work of Mike Grell. And hopefully we'll be hearing about uh, new projects uh from, uh, from D.C. about maybe uh, bringing Warlord back, but if not, we look forward to the, uh, the eventual novels of both Sable and the Savage Empire. That'd be great. So uh, I thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, John. It's been great talking to you. See you in the funny books.
0: Word Balloon is brought to you by my listeners, the League of Word Balloon listeners, via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. You know, Word Balloon is like an audio magazine when you come right down to it in terms of the types of interviews that I do. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it uh, enriches Your love of uh, comic books and pop culture in general with the various subjects I hit and the guests that I have. Um, Is Word Balloon worth a dollar a month to you? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month to you? If you think it is, uh, I would love your support. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But uh, there are costs. And, uh, you know, hey, you're helping me out. So uh, if you would, I would really appreciate the support. Patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thank you, as always, the League of Word Balloon listeners.